We're going to be right now back in Kings, I believe chapter 17. So let's go ahead and find our places. Elijah won't oblige ya. I know it gets tricky every week. I'm going to put this right down here, Sherry. This would be the sign up, okay? Lord, we ask for your blessings on our teaching today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for its application, the history of it, which again is the proclamation of your story through men and women who have been exercised in faith. Thank you for the gift of faith. Thank you as well that you have given us the privilege of believing you in faith. And these things are important. They are as a marriage in which what we exercise in faith needs to be believed on, trusting in you, not doubting. So thank you for hearing us even now and causing there to be that beautiful work of an anointing upon your word by your spirit. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen. Elijah is the focus on today's teaching, but just in advance of that, we left off with one of the terrible kings that was going to be dealt with as well. We're presuming by causes that are both natural and allowable. In this case, this would be the father of a notorious king that's going to be coming on the scene, Ahab. Here's where we're going to just move through it very quickly at the 29th verse before entering chapter 17. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri became king over Israel, and Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. So Samaria is going to be the capital city of the northern tribes. Not a comparison by any means to the holy city, Jerusalem, which is known as Judah, comprised of that as the larger tribe and Benjamin, the smaller tribe. The separation happened, as you recall, because of Solomon's transgression and the push thereafter was certainly by Rehoboam in terms of an executive decision that he had made not to listen to wise counselors. We don't know. It could have been that had he repented, turned from the ways of his father, and pointed Israel back to God, who knows? That's always the question mark. We must be those who have the certainty of not necessarily saying, oh, it's all done, it's all over. We know there's going to be an end time, but what is God able to do if in the hard time, men and women, people, groups, nation, the 
globe in its entirety look to God and repent of sin that is both covert and overt, stuff that they believe is being done behind the backs of God or behind the back of God, and as well behind public opinion. Sometimes it is overt that it might garnish public opinion and approval. But Omri right now is going to be the one that by his fatherhood did not correct his child at all. How could he? He was just as wicked as all those who had come before him. Ahab, the son of Omri, verse 30, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all those who were before him. And it came to pass, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nabat, that he took his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. And then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Thiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segub, he set up its gates according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. And so just in advance of moving to understand this powerful prophet that is going to be on the scene, we've been introduced to the king whom will be confronted by Elijah, this sinister man who has, unlike godly alliances and what we need to see and believe in, husbands and wives loving the Lord, their God, our God, these were terribly pagan alliances. Ahab had no conviction about God, though he was a leader of God's people, for it had not been passed down to him by his father, nor his father's father's father. We can see that the legacy of really um, heresy and apostasy was not broken. And therefore, the Lord has appointed Elijah seemingly from nowhere because we don't see where historically, except at this point, how he's come on the scene. What we do know is that God is making a point to judge a world in which by rejecting him and embracing carnality, they are offending God and they are harming themselves. As this text gives us at least an idea of what's going on, it's pagan worship. Jezebel is the influencer of Ahab and probably 
It is not difficult to influence him, for he has no conviction with regard to God. But two names right now, at least for us, or suggested in this, need to be understood. There's still worship going on in what are called the groves. And it points probably to a goddess that the northern tribes began to worship from the pagan um, deities that they worshipped, known as a tree goddess, protector of the forests. It's kind of interesting that in a time in which prolifically back in the mid-70s through the early 80s, we had forestry dialed in. We learned how to cut trees, not clear-cut. We learned how to plant. We learned how to move and take out debris that would be kindling for fire seasons. You remember that even in the latter, maybe to maybe latter 60s, early 70s, we began to coin a term called a tree hugger. It implied both those who loved being in the out of doors, but it also implied those who said, you will not cut down our trees. Trees would be spiked. People would chain themselves to trees. Do you remember any of that in the news contemporarily at the time? And so they would have to go in there with bolt cutters. Some of those who would be in the industry of cutting trees were also killed by the implements that were embedded in the trees, spikes that would break the chain or cause kickback to the saw. So there were lives being lost in that particular philosophy of worshiping the tree, worshiping creation. Romans 1, about verse 17, 16 and 17 to its conclusion, tells us what happens when we begin worshiping creation rather than the creator. So in the time of Elijah, he had that to contend with. Baal, as we will see confrontation more specifically, was called the storm god or the rain god. But we know that's what he was called. We know that is not what he was. He was a thing created in the imagination of men. Whereas this goddess was identified as a tree, then Baal was one who would be worshipped as a cloud and other kinds of fabrications. They would be calling upon him, and they would be calling upon him pretty intently because at this point in time when our prophet Elijah comes on the scene, he's going to challenge the power of this pagan god to whether or not he can deliver rain on time, in season, out of season. He's a confronter to their culture at that time. Remember, there are pagan communities all around that region, but the influence of them is what Elijah is dealing with. He's dealing powerfully and specifically to those who are pursuing a life of godlessness, of recklessness, of abandonment of God for the embracing of that which is 
made by men. And in our times, the confrontation of culture is ultimately no less a responsibility that we have. In similitude to Elijah, it gets tough to go face to face. And it's certainly methodologically necessary that we don't do things in our own might, our own strength. We do things carrying the banner of love, and we do things understanding the appropriation of grace. But there is a time in which there is no more time for those who have set their hearts on the things of the world and have abandoned the thing of God, which is to receive forgiveness and mercy by the blood of Jesus Christ the King of all kings, Lord of all lords. And so in chapter 17, as Elijah is introduced to us, most of you can see in imagery probably a scraggly old man, barely able to walk except in times where it's intense and he needs to run. But from what we know, this again is charting a chronology of lineage he was born probably about 900 BC, which makes him at the time of Ahab's reign probably about a 26 or 27 year old. You'll hear about a contemporary of his who will actually knit his heart with this prophet and become one that will be even to some degree a greater prophet with regard to the miracles that he will do. A name is similar, and that's Elisha. Elijah's on the scene right now. We'll call them contemporaries. If there's any age difference whatsoever, it could be up to 15 years. That that may be. But I likened it more closely to what Jesus and John the Baptist would represent. John the Baptist, who would be likened to Elijah from the perspective of the hierarchy and the Sanhedrin and the means and manner by which he would convey. He was a very earthy guy, dressed in skins. He was not well kept. He did not have a diet that luxuriated his belly, but he had an appetite to speak the word of God and to dine on the truth of God and to let it go and to let the ears of the people hear it. Elijah right now is presenting himself to Ahab. I don't know if you know this, but if you look at the farmer's almanac, it's actually considered right now documented from the early 2000s, about 2001, that we have been in a succession of drought. Do you feel it? You can hear about it. Have you gone to some of the lakes, how they are diminishing significantly? The rainy season isn't even predictable. And then when it does come, it's in a deluge that causes great consequences. Weird stuff going on in the weather pattern. Hmm, I wonder. Well, we know it's not 
Baal, storm god. But we might be able to say it is God and an allowance of what would be his ideal is to put men on their face. What is going on? What do men do, though? Well, right now, Elijah is going to, by the power that God has vested in him, shut the heavens up from raining. If the people are saying publicly, we depend on Baal, storm god, rain man, to give us our water for our crops. And that indulgence led both to sensuality, meaning the tactile necessity to have control and touch on something in the spirit. God wants nothing to do with it. Not a dependence upon a God that was made by man and man's wicked imagination, but to be dependent upon God exclusively, who promised that he would take care of his people. Elijah, it says, the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, this is the first speaking words of him in this text, as the Lord God of Israel lives whom, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. And so he's very bold to be able to use the singular possessive pronoun, my word. But what we are to understand is that the word that he speaks is the word that God has given to him to voice as a command. It has a lot of similarity to what Moses would say to Pharaoh in a succession of commands that related to plagues that would visit Egypt if Pharaoh did not repent. And so when Moses spoke, it was to be heeded and there was to be release of the children of Israel. When Elijah spoke, it was to be heeded and there wasn't to be release of Israel. Israel was to release their foreign gods. They were to worship the Lord Jehovah to come back to him. That's what we see pronounced. Verse 2 is interesting because there's going to be a turn of events for Elijah after giving this message. And it is not unusual that the message that is given by the messenger, God allows for there to be a steeping, much like a tea bag and a cup, a brewing time, while he puts things into place, while changes are permitted to express themselves in for this crisis, a calamity, which is natural, but it is supernatural. See, they'll be doing things that relate to, man, maybe we're not worshiping Baal enough. <laughs> Did anybody cut down a tree lately? Anybody start a fire? You can't start a fire. See, they may be going through now the assessment of what are we doing wrong, not knowing that what they've done wrong is offending God. The word here that has come from the Lord to Elijah is this. 
Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. Jordan is the primary river source of all of Israel. It comes from a mountain that has snow on it practically year-round. Not heavy snow, but it's snow-capped. And this is an interesting mountain because we'll actually see Jesus make much of it as the Father makes much of him when he takes his disciples up there. Very likely this is Hermon. And so the headwaters forge here. And so this would be considered right now in this, what we would say is a tributary. It flows into the Jordan. This would be a main river as a tributary to those in this region. This is where God's going to make supply for Elijah. As Elijah has delivered the word, God is going to deliver the consequence. How long does it take for a drought to have an effect on agriculture? Well, it depends on the temperature. But it as well depends on the soil. If the soil gets plagued, then the temperature comes up and the water does not permeate the ground, then the consequence is pretty much destruction of all edible agriculture. Who will be affected? Well, bread-making industry goes down. Cattle, sheep, goats goes down. If they cannot eat, then they will die. So basically, it's taking out an entire domestic industry right now. This is huge, very consequential. Where some lessons had been learned in terms of how to build up reserves so that when times of leanness would come, there would be survival. That was practiced under Joseph's time. The Jews also learned how to what? Be dependent upon God solely. And so in this season, probably they were trying to do what at one time was a spiritual principle of reserve but did not maintain it. And so by this brook, Elijah is going to be kept as the word of the Lord goes forth. In consequence, it will be that you shall drink of the brook, verse 4, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. He has the supply of water that his body will need, and he has the supply of bread that he doesn't have to find and bake. This would be a miraculous provision by God that he could be kept in a place isolated from speaking a further word until God speaks through his creation. It's getting lean. You're not getting any more. Talk to your gods all you want. But until you talk to me and listen to the voice of a man that I've spoken to personally, it's going to be hard for you. And so as he's tended, we need to understand that God does tend his people who are doing his will. 
and it might not necessarily be what you would say the ideal, but he does keep us. This brick would supply again his thirst, and the food would supply sustenance for his belly and body. And as he goes, it would seemingly be that he's obedient, but not necessarily understanding exactly why. And that's one of the things about obeying God is that you may not get the why, you just may get the word. The word that you heard you walk in and you wait as the Lord reveals what is the next step. As he is tending this, you need to understand that he would also possibly be challenged because the ravens would be considered, from Leviticus, a dirty bird. And yet it is by that particular bird that food is going to be delivered. God's breaking some boundaries right now, but he's doing so divinely. Part of that is the surprise of how God will use that which we consider unusable, even detestable. To one, invite provision and trust in him, and also to show us that he can use anything and anyone that has a willing heart. It doesn't say that the birds are in the kitchen, and it doesn't say that, he, that they're flying into homes and ripping off domestic bakeries. It just says they're providing. It's interesting that in a season where I was going through a challenge, I was out in my backyard. I think you know where I'm going with this. And I said, Lord, how are you going to provide? And it wasn't a dove. A raven, a crow flew by over my head and dropped a morsel of bread right at my feet. I saved it, actually. I think I even baked it so it wouldn't get moldy. I'm not making much of it. I made much of God. I said, thank you, Lord. Didn't know what it mean, meant, but I do know the intention was a time of encouragement because I sought him for encouragement. So I laugh a little bit on this because for me, it was an encouragement at a moment. But I've also had those same birds leave calling cards on my windows and on my hats. So when he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan, and the ravens brought him bread and meat. Notice that. That did not happen. That would be probably a seagull that would do that. And bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. He was getting provided for all that he had need of. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. So there's provision at the time for what God is doing in the overall populace, and very likely this brook where he's at sustained him beyond what the others were able to receive. All you have to do is go upriver to a closer source, and you have more water. 
And this is what God did. The other sources are drying up. The wells are drying up. He's got the freshest of the water coming in as a tributary source. And this is how the Lord is giving him timing on what to do next. He gets his next, next instruction based on a need that he now sees he has. As it dries up, no rain in the land, verse 8 says, Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. He is learning how to trust the Lord, not simply by the fowl of the air or by a brook from a head tributary. He's now having to go in person to someone he does not know. And it would be indicative that he's having to trust that this woman will be touched by the Lord to yield what she even doesn't know she has. As he goes there, he goes under the premise that a widow has been commanded to provide for you. And so he arose, went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please, bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. Reasonable request for the hike that he had been on. And he's making assumption by this request. Hmm. The Lord said she would provide. I'm thirsty. I'm going to ask for a cup. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. The water she is obliging to get him, that seems more reasonable than now what he is asking for which he says is in her hands. Notice this. And so she said, As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. For her, it's the last meal. It's the last supper for her. Elijah says he sees something, though, in her hands. She's only able to answer what's in my hands or the twigs to start a fire. With the little flour that I have and the oil that I have, and it's for us, it's the last that we have. It's our dying meal that we will be dining on. What do I have to give you? It's interesting because... Elijah's moving on the premise that this woman has been spoken to. What she's saying doesn't seem to be indicative other than acknowledging him as a man of God, assuming that her salutation implied that, what she's going to do. Again, this now moves into her test. This is also a component part of his test. He is a prophet without question. He is right now on the cusp of seeing this dynamic first miracle affect everyone and he's invited into its effect and he's going to be required of God to trust him for the outcome of even how he will be preserved. So 
Verse 13, the comforting word, and maybe for some of us right now presently. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go, and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me, and afterward make some for yourself and your son. There's a principle here in which what we render is to the Lord first, and in the first fruits of what we give to him, we experience the blessings of his provision and meeting our needs. It's always a challenge because we always ask, there's not enough for me. This is the last of all I've got. And God says, give it to me and see what I will do with it to you and to me. It's always the case. It's a principle of trusting God, not on what you don't have, but on what he is able to make supply of abundantly beyond anything that we can ask, but certainly in the sufficiency of our needs, the sufficiency of our needs. And so it says this, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. There's no break in the drought. But this promise is to her that your flour is not going to be depleted and your oil will be full in the jars that you have. That's a promise to her when right now she's still probably wrestling what he's asked me to do is impossible if I'm going to sustain my son, which no doubt as a mother her heart is for. And also that she might at least enjoy the last of what she believes she has to offer both of them. And so verse 15, she went away, did, notice this, obedience, according to the word of Elijah, and she and he and her household, note, ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he, which he spoke by Elijah. That's where this story concludes. A prophetic mission that had been delivered personally by Elijah to this wicked king, Ahab, very likely, we will call this beyond a regional drought. Very likely, it is worldwide to that understanding. Much like the flood was not simply a geopolitical flood in a lake sense, it was a worldwide flood that condemned the entire world under judgment by God. Is the Lord able to apply pressure through a system that at least by almanac has been happening now since 2000. And I remember just going, the lakes aren't the same. The river ain't the same. Something's happening. What is going on? They say the seas are rising. How can a sea rise? Well, it's the icebergs that are melting. Hmm. I don't understand. But as God allows pressure to be applied on the hearts of people who have been pressured by culture 
to turn their backs on him and to look to their own resources and means, then God certainly has the authority to, in this time frame, influence the decision that a man or a woman, children under them will make. And it's no less for our nation right now. How long, Lord? How long? Well, it's not the worship of trees that have saved us because the forests are burning. And they burn because we are not keeping them, as is our charge. We're letting them go and telling no man to touch them. It's affected industries. We're removing dams. How stupid. They were designed to be reservoirs for times in which droughts would come. But we've removed them. We removed three in Grants Pass, I believe. While I was there, three of them that were historic were removed. Farmers then had challenges irrigating their rural community farms, small farms. We did too. You had to be put on a schedule of how much water you could use and the day on which you could use it. It was hard. The conclusion here, though, leads us to the question, Lord, what is it that you would have us do in this season in which the church offers the world living water, in which the church offers the world living bread? Lord, what would you have us do? And so one of the things that we get to do is to trust him with what you may see as the small amount I have for the greater provision of what he will satisfy. I don't know the Bible. I don't know if I have fearlessness to face off with my family and friends and vocational workers. But all it takes is a moment in which what God has put in your hand, what God has put in your heart, you are able to say with at least faith under reserve, this is what I'm going to do with it. This is how I'm going to give hope to that person. You know, today there were the evidence of, of my heart of hurting people. And I knew that coffee wouldn't meet the need, though I did offer it. But what I did do is I got down at their level and I prayed for them in that moment in which I discovered a drought in their soul. And though a part of me was broken in it, and I could tell it because my voice was not a strong voice, but I was confident that in what I was praying about in their life, not knowing the specifics, but just being willing to get down on their level and to pray for them. I knew that God was at work because they came to the right place at the right time to receive what the world has depleted from them or choices that have left them without a belief any longer in the miraculous provision of God to restore them to a faith that probably they exercised at one time jubilantly. 
In the book of Hebrews, simply right now, documenting something that I believe gives us both anticipation of how Elijah's life will unfold in great accomplishment. And remember right now, at this time, let's presume, about 26, 27, he's going to have about 20 more years of effective service for the Lord. You can't necessarily see him as an old geezer, but he's going to get matured in the faith. I've seen the statutes of him, I know. And back then, people aged a lot quicker than they do in these days. But simply by chronology right now, you got a guy that's got the strength of the youth, and he's got a strength and confidence in God. And he's willing to go face to face with his culture and tell them about God and the consequences thereof unless they turn. We have that message to give to those whom have power as well to look to God and authority briefly in our country. Here's what it says. Because you remember one of the last verses we left off was Jericho. Jericho was not to be rebuilt. And so in this area right now, which is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. That man, Hael of Bethel, decided, huh, I'm not sure if God's word was really that true. Joshua, who cares about him? He lived, he died, big deal. But the curse was upon any man that would try to build what was an impermeable, defensive fortress against the children of God. And the walls came down because of God, and they were never to be erected again. And here's this guy going, huh, all the other kings are doing what they want to do. I'm going to make myself king for a day, and I'm going to build a city. He lost two sons, one at the beginning and the foundation, and one at the closure. Huh, first son down. I got another one. Let's hang that gate. Doesn't say what happened. Did the gate fall him? Doesn't say. The judgment came. But he lost as a result of not obeying the word of the Lord. And so it continues to say, By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies, and it says, with peace. A woman's life was transformed by hiding the spies that came by command of Joshua to see what that place looks like. And knowing that they were on a mission from God, she said, save me. Do not let me perish in this city. Save me and my household. And they said, if you hang a scarlet flag from this window, we will see it. And you will not die, nor your household. An amazing act of faith. And an amazing deliverance by God for her. In spite of what her reputation was, she was no longer doing it. And what more, verse 32, shall I say, for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword. 
out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to fight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. And still verse 36, perhaps where we can embrace this right now, had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and of imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskin and goatskin, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive note the promise. They weren't necessarily saying, it's dependent upon me getting that now. They lived in the belief that the now would pass, but the eternal would be their reward. And God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. And so the life of Elijah is really the life of where we can say the church as well has a call. And that is to be obedient to the voice of God, to confront culture at its most deplorable, to be those who do not apologize for the morals that God presents in his word on how we are to present ourselves. And we're living at the same time, though in what we would call disconcerting days, we have confidence in the Lord. He's on the throne. He's into the harvest. You just said there's a drought. He's into the spiritual harvest. And the drought may be that which convinces people to come in from the outside to take a drink of what he offers to the inside that will flow from them as torrents of living water to be saved, to be born again. Lord, we ask for your blessings that as we look in the life of one man who as a young man was willing to serve you, even at the peril of death. And he will face off with that particular problem, that challenge, the threats that he will receive. But he's one that showed courage in times in which his people were not operating in conviction. Lord, thank you for your word which washes us. Thank you for the word that has promises in it that encourages us as well. Thank you for these things. And we ask your blessings that as we pay tribute to you and the worship that you are worthy of, as we render to you that which is stewardship before you, thank you for your faithfulness. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.